Welcome to this week's episode of One Vision. Today, we have the great pleasure, finally, of speaking with the one and only Dr. Lida Glyptis, the Chief Executive Officer at 11FS Foundry, author of a weekly series of articles in FinTech Futures that is now known simply as hashtag LidaWrites on Twitter. If you had not followed or read what Lida writes, you have to do it. Like I implore you when you get off, actually just pause on, on this podcast and go and, and read her articles. Anyway, so let's start there. Um, how long have you been writing this weekly series and what's been on your mind lately? Oh, guys, it's so good to be here. And I'm actually smiling like an idiot now because you're, you're just way too kind. Um, the weekly series is in its fourth year. Um, and actually, I had been uh, writing for Fintech Futures on and off for a couple of years before that. And then uh, Tanya, the uh, managing editor, was like, let's make this weekly. And I said, who's going to read this weekly? And she said, well, if they don't, we'll stop. Uh, but the community that has emerged around the articles and the amazing insights and, and um, the learnings I've had from what people bring to me on the back of the pieces has been just absolutely incredible. So yeah, week in, week out for coming up to um, four years. That's pretty amazing. I actually didn't realize it was that long. I think it's uh, you own Thursdays now for us, so it's, uh, it's one of those things now. Yes, um, you had it. You had us conditioned to actually look for your article, and it's one of those. Okay, what is she going to write about? I, I had no idea it was four years either. It's labor of love. It's it is a labor of love, and it's a labor of collective love because the way that. Uh, all of you guys and, and the community come together and, and make comments and bring ideas is actually um, both super inspiring, but also kind of feeds the cycle. But uh, as you, you say there, you don't, um, you're like, what, what, what is it going to be this, um, this week? I sometimes have that as well, because the way I write uh, back in the, in the world before the plague, I used to write on planes a lot because you had that concentrated time, no Wi-Fi. So depending on my flight schedule, I would be usually a good few weeks in advance. And, and people would be like, oh, my God, is this week's piece about the thing that happened on Tuesday? And it's like, no, this week's piece was written in, like, March, and we're in August. <laughs> um, but it's always, it's, it's always been um, quite funny because people, particularly employees, uh, but also partners, uh, clients are always joking about whether they're on the lookout to see whether they will feature in a, in a leader, right? In a good way or not. <laughs> so, so let's dive into like the rest of leader then. Um, you describe yourself as a FinTech nerd who cares deeply about people, ideas, and doing things the right way for the right reasons. So let's talk about what you're doing at 11FS and how does what you and your team do sort of fall into that last bit, doing things for the right reason. So what are you doing? So we are building a cloud-native modular core banking infrastructure. Um, and, and the premise uh, of 11FS Foundry was coming together to solve the problems we had as bankers and solve the problems in a way that the existing solutions weren't solving. The space has uh, a lot of incumbents, a lot of um, challengers who've come in and tried to solve the problem from a particular angle. Foundry comes at it um, 
having learned from the work done by challengers before and saying, well, we don't feel you guys had gone far enough because fundamentally this space has been constrained by what we had. And, and historically, when I was working in a bank and all the banks I've worked with over the years, we'll start with the things they can or can't do because of the infrastructure they have and the limitations it imposes. And, and that's a, a reality of life that we had lived with for so long. Rather than allowing our aspirations to drive our strategy, we would have to limit those aspirations to what the technology could support. And it's understandable. Uh, the tools are extremely important in delivery. And we also all know that core backing transformations are career and affairs for a lot of CTOs. Right. So it has been a space that um, has always been contentious and difficult. And, and we approached it from um, I, 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 we didn't approach it from the angle of how can we do this better? We approached it from the angle of what is it that needs to be done and what technology have we got that allows us to do the job that needs doing without trying to um, solve for the shape that it used to have. So for me, fundamentally, the, the two things that Foundry does uh, differently is that it it removes a lot of the false dichotomies that we used to believe we had to make a choice between agility and scale, between security and flexibility. The technology we have at our fingertips now means that all of those are false choices. You don't have to make a choice. You can have both. And you can have all of that at a much lower price point than we're used to paying for this particular space. So the shape has changed. The function has changed. The price tag needs to also change. Um, and there is a, a, a deeply democratizing effect if you can do this right and bring it to market and saying, well, the infrastructure that is turtles all the way down, that's truly digital to the core, is a hygiene factor. It is essential, but not adequate for then a financial institution, a bank, to provide a, a proposition on top of it that will delight and empower the customer. We are coming in to provide that essential plumbing, essentially, on top of which the institutions, big or small, can design and launch truly digital capabilities for their customers that are more flexible, faster to market, easier to amend and um, cheaper to run. But let's go back to before 11FS. Um, so you're a CIO at uh, Kumbi Group in Qatar, had similar roles in BNY Mellon in London, and worked in different consulting roles in various places, even all over the place. Um, yeah, I've been around. <laughs> You've been, been around. around. <laughs> um, so how how is it like to, you know, if we were to compare running a team in Qatar compared to that in London, um, there are obviously cultural differences. There are differences within different companies and, and what have you. Um, what are some of the interesting things um, between all of these roles and functions? Let's go back in time. Oh, my God. Have I got stories? Um, so one of the one of the things um, that is you, you sort of um, touched on it already, Theo, that um, the biggest differences um, in culture are actually intercompany rather than from continent to continent. Uh, because the, the reality is a bank is a bank is a bank and they operate very similarly. And a lot of the bankers float around from one country to the next. And therefore a lot of the, and, and the markets are very global and the patterns are very global. So 
Working in a bank in New York, London or Doha is not that different, uh, although the banks in themselves are quite different. There are definitely um, contextual differences, obviously living in, in, in Qatar as, a, as, a, as an expat of, is, is very, very different to your life in London as a foreigner. Um, but I would say that the, the thing that is most surprising is how similar those big organizations are across different, um, different geographies. The one thing that I, I found very interesting um, in, um, in doing banking in the Gulf is that essentially you're inside a capitalist institution in a, in a rent-based economy. And that was a very, it was a very interesting transition because doing banking in the States, in, in the UK, anywhere in Europe, you're, you're inside a, a sort of capital-oriented and capital-centered framework. Whereas in, um, in Doha, although there is definitely a capitalist economy, the mainstay of the economy is oil and gas rent-based infrastructure. Um, and some of the dynamics are very different and some of the resulting pricing is very different and some of the resulting if this then that relationships of um of service provision is different and that was an amazing education but i would say that uh the the banks in the three different continents have had more similarity uh between them than crossing the street from where i started in a deutsche bank basement to where the 11fs office is which is literally across the street 15 years later you're like back where you started that is a that is a bigger change and although we like we like to talk about it and becomes um, it's almost a truism, the reality is that the minute you step out of a regulated entity, um, even though you're still working with regulated entities, the way you work can be much much faster, um, and 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 it and also the agility of a smaller organization cannot be underestimated. But it's the combination of you know you're no longer inside a globally significant financial institution. You're working with them, but your ability to move fast, experiment is definitely enhanced by that. And of course, the inherent agility of a, of a startup means that it's a, it's a bigger cultural shift crossing the street than it was uh, going to the other side of the world. You, you come to 11FS and from my, you know, sort of outside perspective, it looks like you came from like a regulated bank into what oftentimes, at least from the beginning of it, looked kind of like a circus. I mean, 11FS <laughs> has a lot of energy. Um, but as part of, you know, wearing so many hats at 11FS, you got to meet and interview Will I Am of Black Eyed I did. <laughs> so, so, like, you know, is, is, was he on your list, you know, when, when you came into 11FS of people that you thought you would be able to talk to? And you know who else, course, is no. be, who else is going to be on that sort of you know? I'm going to sit and have a couple with with that. Oh my god, no! It was absolutely not on my list. And and 11FS has a very um, a very powerful media presence. And although the the work that is being done in in sort of in outside the forefront, either on the foundry side, we're building a product, uh, or on the consulting side, where a lot of it is not public because obviously the the it, it's it's confidential work with the clients. There is that that. Um, shopfront where the uh, the marketing work uh, takes place and and it is as you say super high energy it is um, it has great polyphony which is one of the things that I, I I liked before I joined the company there's like as many voices as there are people 
Uh, but I never saw myself as uh, as front and center of, of of that team, right? I was coming in as as a banker to to do something in the back room. I knew that I would get a chance to occasionally um, participate, but it was it was not on my list. And when David Breer had said, "We're going to get Will I Am on the show," I was like, "Yeah, sure, you will." But uh, I had just come back from Australia, uh, and I was jet lagged like you cannot believe. So I was up and on my laptop at some ungodly hour, and David put um put a note on Slack saying, we have an opportunity to do a one-to-one -one interview with Will I Am, and I cannot make it. Who's like, who's up for this? And I was awake and I was like, me. <laughs> so it was like, okay, there you go. So I went up to Newcastle um, to meet Will I Am, boom, boom, pow. So, so who else is going to be on that list? You know, if you had a short list uh, beyond that, uh, who you're going to sit and have a conversation with is is uh, Martin Sheen and, and Josiah Bartlett's uh, character going to be on that list? I mean, who, who oh would you think top two or three here? You know he would be on that list. You know he would be top of that list. The thing is that, can I can I have my wish list irrespective of whether I can have even the most tenuous link to fintech? Yeah, yeah, you know, alive or dead, whatever, right? Oh man, I would love to meet Neil deGrasse Tyson. I don't think he would have any interest in banking technology. So we would have to find a different way, but uh, I would just, I could listen to him for hours. There's just some, um, well, you know this about me, Brad, there's this poetry in science and I, there's some people and he's one of them who just marry the two so beautifully. I think they're, and, and, yeah, and, to, absolutely. and to your point, I mean, my, my love of the West Wing is, is well known to anyone who reads me. It's just that informed optimism which uh, you don't often get because the more informed people are, they tend to be more cynical. Uh, it's what I love about the, the Jed Bartlett character is what I love about Neil deGrasse Tyson, that educated, informed optimism. Can we bring him on the show? Yeah, if you could get him. Have, have David work on that for us. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll, definitely, I'll definitely get him done that. We would like to give a mention to our creative partner, Tremendousness. Tremendousness is a creative agency that uses visual thinking, information design, and storytelling to help organizations explore innovations, products, and processes. Learn more at www.tremendo.us. Lydia, I think we just found the uh, topic of your next article, your wish list of people to bring on your show. Lida <laughs> uh, will stop writing unless you find a reason for Neil deGrasse Tyson to hang out with me. Here you go, Tanya. That's your uh, motivation right there. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about, let's go back further. In time. Um, you have a doctorate from the London School of Economics and Polsai. Studied early in King's College at University of Cambridge. I still remember this vividly, um, that the first time I actually, quote unquote, met you on, on Twitter. And, and I remember, I, I think it was either from Liz or Sharon, one of the two that, that insisted on someone on Twitter calling you Dr. Lita Kleptis. They said, she is a doctor. She has a PhD. Something to the extent she's going to kick your ass. And I'm that like, was me. wow, I need yes, to pay that attention. Was, that was you? <laughs> so that was actually Brad. Um, I, um, 
there was a, a thing, if you remember it, uh, a few years ago, a good few years ago now, um, Immodest Women. Do you remember Immodest Women on Twitter? An academic had been um, essentially taken to task uh, on television, I believe it was, for claiming her own expertise. And she was described by her interlocutor as an immodest woman for, for stressing her PhD was real and made her an expert. Um, and on the back of it, this hashtag started trending, immodest women. And, and there was um, a movement for women who had doctorates to, to make a point of not hiding it. And, and I didn't. And I got a, a, I got a very powerful message from Brad offline saying, you have uh, it's actually giving me goosebumps now to think about it all these years on. You have a duty to represent because what you have achieved, it's, it's a thing that for other people might be an inspiration. They might look up and say, I could never do that. And the fact that you stand there having done that may make someone think, actually, if she can, I can. And he's right. He was absolutely right. And I'm so glad he told me off and I'm so glad I did it because I have had a lot of people on the back of it say um, either I'm going to go for it or I'm not going to try and hide my views, my opinions, my intellect, my whatever. I mean, it's still, we shouldn't be having these conversations, right? But it's still, it's still hard being a particular type of woman in a particular type of business. So it was Brad actually, yeah. Wow, good memory, guys. See, it's so long ago, I totally forgot, but kudos um, to, to Mr. Lima right here. He has his moments. Um, he does. <laughs> let's, let's go back to, so let's tell us a little bit about the focus of, of your studies there and how your research has impacted what you have decided to do thereafter. I mean, I, I am flattered by the implication that you thought there was a plan there for a second because there wasn't. Uh, but there has definitely been an influence and there has definitely been an impact. My my thesis was on um, the mechanics of political legitimacy. And I specifically looked at the rise of political Islam in the context of the secular state in Turkey. It was a fascinating time to be looking at that. It was a fascinating topic. and on the surface of it, there's absolutely zero connection between that and what I'm doing now. Um, but the reality is that there is a particular discipline that goes into studying for a doctorate, staying with a question and staying with a problem until you come up with an, a genuinely original answer, giving it the time, uh, the rigor, all of that is evidently very, very useful when you're trying to um, solve problems. But also more fundamentally, societies are all about system thinking, right? So actually the study of politics, the study of political reform and transformation is extremely valuable in the work we do because um, you don't need to be in the millions for the same behaviors of tribalism and resistance uh, to, to emerge in, or in, in, in any grouping of humans. Actually, the organizations most of us live and work in are big enough to display some of the of very similar characteristics. So it's been, it's been useful, not immediately applicable. Um, and I still get people going, you did what? Uh, but, uh, but definitely, definitely useful.
but, but you know, that's the thing. It's like every every experience that you have, whether it's school or what you read or what you consume on a daily basis, it has like a building block to the the part of what your character is. And I think that's, that's right. you know, you, you're going through those studies are part of why you are who you are today, right? Um, and it's and it shows up in your writing, the way that you probably think, the way that you structure your teams and the rest. So let's let's get back to that a little bit more because you know, your, your writing is central to a lot of the ways that people know you. And it's obvious that it's this labor of love. And we we honestly can't count the number of phrases that are quotable. And you, every Thursday, have people quoting your pieces back to you with leader rights. Um, yeah, so central to those themes are these components uh, and, and passion around leadership and teams. And, you know, when you look at how to make sense of your writing and how it fits in with the banking industry and its impact, you know, tell us a little bit more about, you know, how you run your teams and how that kind of falls into your writing. I don't, I don't know where to, to, so you, I started writing four years ago, right? When I was still working inside um, a bank and quite a lot of the, um, the ways you are allowed to do certain things are much more constrained in a bank. So in some ways, uh, the writing was, the, the writing came before the doing. Um, I always did my, my very best inside specific cultural organizations to provide an environment of support and transparency and, and sort of leading from the back and, and allowing people to do their best work by being their shield and, and letting them flourish. But inside a banking organization, that very often goes against the grain and you need to, you need to keep a balance of actually protecting your people from making them too different and outside, but also um, doing what you believe is right. And for the first, um, for the first few years, the writing was an outlet of the frustration of keeping that balance and, and finding ways of being true to what you believe is the right way of managing a, a team and allowing talent to flourish in a constrained organization. And I was lucky enough to have some very good bosses who, who sort of broke the mold and showed me how it can be done. I had some very bad bosses as well, but, um, but I had some very good ones as well who showed me what, what is possible. I think the the gear change has become uh, huge when when I found myself in in Eleven FS Foundry, where I had essentially a blank sheet of paper and absolute freedom to to eat my own dog food and practice what I preach, in terms of hiring people who are smarter than you, getting out of their way, and allowing them to do their best work by essentially working for them rather than the other way around. So my job is to do the thing that they need me to do to do their thing, and that's it. I was just going to say, it's it's amazing what you can accomplish when knives aren't out and you're actually able to do what you believe in. And that, I think, you know, comes across in, in maybe the change in your writing a little bit from when you were working inside the bank to, to when you have sort of this blank sheet now. Absolutely. And and, and I, I suspect that if you go back and, and read a bunch of pieces, like going back in time, you will see that... Um, the triggers are very different because the first few years uh, writing was to a very large extent therapy, <laughs> whereas um, in in recent years it's more observational. And that, and at first I was actually I, I was saying to Tanya, well, I'm not I'm not that angry anymore. Do you think I'm going to lose my my edge here? Uh, but but it's still um it's an industry I care deeply about, and and the fact that I'm not constrained by some of those. Um, realities of working in a big corporate doesn't mean that I don't I don't 
feel and appreciate why they're there and feel and appreciate how they constrain other people who are very much like us, but they're trying to still do um, the good work inside the organization. So taking that one step further, um, in the back of, of, of the context of what's been going on today, right? Both from an industry perspective, as well as our world as large, um, how do you feel about the future? Um, and if you have a crystal ball, what, what would you be a decade from now? Oh, writing God. a book, of course, at least, right? <laughs> We're waiting for your book. <laughs> Um, I'll, I'll definitely, I'll definitely get to the book. Um, I, I don't have a crystal ball, um, but I do see, um, an opportunity and I do worry that we're missing it. And, and I, I, it's kind of what the next couple of leader rights are actually about. If you want a sneak preview of, um, we have spent so many years working around transformation and acknowledging that change is hard and, and people seek comfort and familiarity. And now the world is topsy-turvy and it's, there is nothing that is knowable, right? It's not just our industry, it's our personal lives, it's, it's um, our country, the country where we live, the country where we're from, the country where our friends are. It's, there is no place where you can say, well, if I go back to that piece, that, that will be fine unless you can go back in time. And, um, and that disruption is, is extremely difficult, both practically and emotionally. I do see it as a massive opportunity to, to say, well, if nothing I have historically held on to is guaranteed and safe, then I have a once in a lifetime opportunity to really go for the thing as it should be. So in our industry, we have the opportunity to go, okay, massive disruption. Uh, it is no longer about maintaining market share the way it used to be. It's no longer about um, changing as little as possible to, to hold on to whatever it is we've got for as long as we can. This is about genuinely navigating a, a, a changed and changing world where we can say, what am I here for and how can I best serve the customer, the community, uh, the purpose I'm here for and use this incredible technology I've got at my fingertips to make those changes in a way that is insanely focused and determined because it has to be. Because what this um, pandemic has done to us as an industry is that it completely um, shot our plans to pieces, right? And I don't just mean in, in the grand scheme of things. I mean that every bank around the planet right now is going, okay, so the forecast for this year, we can put that in the bin. The projects we had committed to for the year can put those in the bin. The utilization bond, like everything you had planned can go in the bin because the world changed. And it is a unique opportunity not to seek scapegoats, and I don't think anyone is, not to start figuring out how you can tweak to plug those gaps, but say, okay, we, we made plans for a world that actually may never come back. So right now in the middle of the year, we have a choice. One choice is to make the most of where we're at so that we can end the year as close to the original plan as we can, which is sadly what most of our industry is doing, or to say, okay, this is not over. The plan is shot to pieces. I've got a as blank of a sheet of paper as I can possibly have with a running organization and, and obligations. What should I be doing? So this was a very, very long answer to your question. I think the opportunity to do that is there. 
I'm seeing a few organizations dotted around the world warming up to doing something like this with the caveats that, you know, they're looking after our pensions and our mortgages and you don't want them to to be too um, flighty. But at the same time, my crystal ball says the people who will be celebrated as visionary successes in 10 years when we're doing this again will be the ones who didn't try to close the year as close to the plan as possible, but who'd be like, sod the plan, the world changed, and it's about time we change too. The world has indeed changed, and uh, we look forward to the next few pieces and thereafter, and uh, look forward to actually be able to see you again in person. It's been a while since Amsterdam. Same here, guys, same here. I really hope the, the world lifts and we can meet in person again. And uh, and uh, I can I can tell you even more stories from my travels then without the recording button blinking at me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, then with that, thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of One Vision.